0: in Gresham, Oregon, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Gresham, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Gresham. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome, everyone. I am your host, James Orr, and this is a very special class. I don't know if I've taught a class exactly like this one before, so uh, we'll see how it goes, and hopefully you enjoy it. The class today is, what does financially independent mean? What does financially independent mean? So, Let's give a little background about why I decided to do this class. So here's kind of where where I'm at right now, what I'm thinking about. So uh, many real estate investors, not everybody, but many real estate investors who have uh, been owning real estate for the last, I don't know, five, 10 years, maybe even longer, um, especially ones with very low mortgage interest rates. And the lower your mortgage interest rate, typically the faster you're paying down principal on your loan. So the lower your mortgage interest rate, the more principal you pay early on in the loan. Um and oddly enough, the less it changes, less the amount you're paying down a principal changes over time. Um technically, I think this math is correct. I've I proved it to myself before, but it's been a long time since I've done it. The amount of principal you pay down on a loan actually increases by whatever the mortgage interest rate is. So if you think about that, the higher interest rates that we're seeing today it means that the amount you're paying in principal early on is a little bit lower, but the amount you pay in principal actually increases at whatever that interest rate is. So over time, you pay down a larger and larger amount compared to what you were in the beginning, if that makes any sense. So many real estate investors found themselves kind of in this situation where, um, where they're owning real estates with very low mortgage interest rates, which means they're paying down their principal really, really quickly and we've seen prices go up very rapidly over the last, whatever it is, 10 years or so. So people have seen their equity increase significantly. A lot of people are sitting on very high amounts of equity in their properties. And rents are lagging a little bit. I mean, rents are up, but they're, you know, maybe they're going down now. I mean, it may have overshot a little bit, but we're seeing rents not quite keep up with the increase in interest rates and the increase in prices that we've seen. So rents are lagging behind a little bit. So when you combine these kind of lagging rents with this super significant increase in equity for both having these really low mortgage interest rates and paying down a lot of principal and prices going up, the overall return on equity on the properties that you own have been going down. If you think about that, right? Like your equity in your property has increased so much, and the rent you're getting on it, the cash flow you're getting on it, the appreciation you're getting on it, the debt pay down, the depreciation you're getting on it are all growing, but they're not growing quite as fast as your equity is. So the return you're getting on equity goes down. And this is relatively normal, right? This is this is not anything new. We've seen this kind of phenomenon before in a normal case, right? Like the normal situation is property values go up a little bit each year. You know, you pay down your mortgage a little bit each year and you're kind of like your, your profit on the property, your appreciation, your cash flow, your debt pay down, your depreciation. They call kind of grow a little bit if all depreciation stays the same until it drops off. But in general, these things tend to grow over time, but not quite as fast as your equity. So in general, return on equity tends to kind of taper out. And eventually when you pay off the property and you lose your depreciation benefit, it uh, tends to approach Cap rate plus your unleveraged appreciation rate. So if you're bought a five cap property, you know, your your kind of like overall return on equity would eventually taper out to be that 5% cap rate uh, number and whatever the appreciation rate you are seeing in your market is, you know, 3%, whatever it is, you know. And so the total between those two is probably about 8%. So over time, your return on equity tends to taper off to be about this 8%, 3% from appreciation, 5% from cap rate. And that's where we typically do. But when you have equity increase very rapidly, this curve drops off very quickly, and you have this much lower overall return on equity, which leads people to wonder, what should I do? You know, I've got all this equity in my properties, and the return on my equity is actually getting lower than what it was when I acquired these properties even a few years ago. You know, should I go and sell the property? Should I do a cash out refinance on the property? Should I just do a rate and term refinance on the property? Maybe extend out when I'm going to pay this thing off in order to get my payment down a little bit. Even if interest rates are higher, sometimes it works out that it'd be a little bit better doing that. Most cases not, especially when interest rates were whatever they were, three, 4%, 5%. And now they're seven, high sixes, eight, depending on where you are and what you're buying. You know, Do you get a second mortgage to kind of re- retain that Low interest rate that you have on the on the mortgage you currently have there. Maybe you go get like an investment property HELOC home equity line of credit, and you are able to borrow some money on top of that in order to go do it. Um, and or maybe you do nothing. Maybe you decide, hey, I'm not going to do anything with this particular property. And if you do decide to pull cash out, or if you have any extra cash that you're trying to invest somewhere, what should you invest in it in? You know, should you go buy real estate? Well, buying now sure doesn't look like the deals that we had in the last decade or so, where interest rates were at all time lows, you know, prices are high, interest rates are high, rents are lagging, making the cash flow on these properties less than amazing. And who wants to give up the cash flow on the property that you do have with these really low interest rates in order to go take on new properties that probably have worse cash flow. So it's kind of like in this really weird situation we're sitting in, where you have, you know, these lagging returns on equity from having all this great appreciation and, and debt pay down over the last few years. And now you've got nothing really to invest in, which makes you wonder, you know, what should I be doing? I mean, I think for a lot of folks, there's fear, you know, what could happen in the future? I mean, am I missing the boat? Do I, uh, you know, have, can I not acquire any more properties in my plan? You know, I'm a little frustrated with that. There's some uncertainty, you know, is, is this the end of it? You know, did I miss the boat with this nomad thing? Did I miss the boat with buying these rental properties and having these rental properties work? There's doubt. You know, is this going to be the plan that gets me there? There's lack of clarity. You know, what should I do? Should I go sell these properties? Should I go do a rate and term refi? Should I do a cash out refi? Should I add the second mortgage? Should I do nothing? You know, should I not buy any more properties? Should I continue to buy properties? And I think to a certain degree, there's a lack of focus. You know, we're thinking about all these different options that we have, and we're thinking, well, maybe I should go look at something new, some type of shiny object. Should I go, you know, speculate in land? Should I go, uh, you know, learn how to buy properties creatively subject to because, you know, these, there's all these low interest rate loans out there. Maybe I should go acquire properties that way. Maybe I should go and do short-term rentals to get my cash flow up on properties. Maybe I should start doing accelerated depreciation or bonus depreciation in order to be able to overcome some of this negative cash flow stuff. Maybe I should do that in order to generate down payments for buying more properties. Like there's all these different options to think about. But then you start thinking, well, maybe I should stick to the plan. <laughs> you know, maybe I should go and buy more properties so that I can use the equity I'm seeing in those, even if cash flow isn't amazing, to then go pay off, you know, half of the properties that I keep. Um so, you know, buy 10, sell off five, pay off the remaining five. You know, there's all there's that strategy if you want to do that. Or maybe I should take extra cash flow and pay down my mortgage right now. So there's all this sort of like fear, uncertainty, doubt, lack of clarity, lack of focus. Um, and, and honestly, these decisions are really driven by, you know, what is your desired outcome? What do you really want from this thing? And for most of us, that's ultimately financial independence. And, it, and, and to be even clearer, a lot of times it's usually faster path to financial independence and or a safer path to financial independence, right? Because I think a lot of us, not everybody, but a lot of us will ultimately get to financial independence, even if we don't do anything crazy, anything aggressive, anything, you know, taking action into our own hands and optimizing, right? Um, but I think a lot of folks are like, well, if I can get there 10 years faster and I don't have to work the job that I don't love, or maybe some people love their job, but you know, a lot of people are like the job that I don't love. If I can stop working that 10 years earlier, that's awesome. Or 20 years earlier. Or if I can do it for I have a much higher probability of being successful, because nothing is really guaranteed. There are very few things that are guaranteed. Uh, we'll talk about a couple things tonight that are guaranteed, or tonight, tonight, this morning. I'm in my own world. You know, um, There are a few things that are guaranteed, but Maybe we can make things safer where we have a higher probability of achieving our goals, our financial independence goals. Or if you're already financially independent, I think, like I think about my situation, Uh, for me, it's more of a margin of safety. You know, we're living at a certain level. And if the investments don't go the way that we hope that they will go, then, uh, you know, I might need to make adjustments or I will get closer to my line where I'll need to make adjustments. So for me, it's more margin of safety. You know, if if the real estate market drops 5, 10, 15, 20, 30%, I might wanna think about what that has an impact on me. Or if the stocks that I have, you know, drop X percent, I might think that I wanna have a larger cushion or margin of safety there. Or I might wanna de-risk myself. You know, look at what my risk profile is right now and where my weak spots are and say, I have a certain amount of risk. What if I de-risk and do other things? You know, paying off properties as one example, or getting out of stocks, another example, or maybe I want to do investments such that I can live at a higher standard of living. You know, right, let's say right now I'm at a $10,000 a month standard of living, and I want to bump up to $15,000 or $20,000 or $30,000 a month. You know, you can go do those things. So really, the decisions we're making about like this whole situation and where we are, although a lot of us have fear, uncertainty, doubt, lack of clarity, lack of focus, it's really the answers to these questions about- What you're trying to do and what you should do in these situations is driven by the outcome that you're looking at. And so that leads into today's class. That's why we're doing today's class. So, what is financial independence? As defined by Wikipedia, financial independence is the status of having enough income or wealth sufficient to pay one's living expenses for the rest of one's life without having to be employed or dependent on others. I could, I, you know, I could take time to break that down. I'm not sure I'm going to take the time to break that down, but like, there's this, there's this whole thing of each, each part of that and what it means. Like, for example, like I, when I heard this this time, I was like, I really latched onto this idea of dependent on others. Well, does that mean if you have rental property and you still are managing that yourself, are you, are you dependent on others? Maybe, probably. Are you relying on a property manager to manage your properties? Maybe, probably. So, you know, even if you start thinking about and breaking it down that way, the definition starts getting a little bit wacky for a lot of folks. So I'd like to back up and instead of going in on, you know, focusing in on each of those little areas and, and doing stuff. I think the general idea is that, you know, you've got enough assets that it is bringing in income where you don't have to work your job anymore, right? That's more of a vague sort of thing. Or you can choose not to work your job. Because some of us, you know, we, we decide, like after taking, I took sabbatical, what, what year was that? 2021? I think I took, a, I started my sabbatical in 2021, it's 2023 right now. Um, and I decided, you know, I was not going to do any work anymore. And uh, I got really bored, <laughs> which is why I'm doing these things now. Uh, I don't think I am uh, suited for not doing much of anything all day or just playing video games all day. So here I am. So, but I could choose not to work. You know, I don't have to. So today we're going to talk about what does it mean mathematically, more mathematically. I'm not going to go into like ridiculous numbers, although I do use an example at one point. But I'm not, I'm going to give you more of a framework in terms of math about what it means to be financially independent. And specifically, I'll focus on some real estate investor stuff because I think that's more my audience, right? And does it look different for real estate investors than investor in stocks, bonds, and other asset classes? And I do think it does, which we'll talk about. So we'll discuss that plus a lot more. Oops. Okay, so how do I define financial independence more in mathematical terms? Like, like, yeah, it's great if you have assets to kind of produce things where you don't have to work anymore. Yeah, that's the Wikipedia sort of definition there. But what does that actually mean? So for me, it means when the following, and I'll give you a list of what it means here, exceeds your personal expenses. So I break it down into three major groups. I have passive income. I have cash flow from rental properties. And then I have other invested assets times the safe withdrawal rate. So I'll break down what each one means. We'll go into some detail. And I'll go off on some tangents because apparently you guys like tangents when I go off on this. So I will do some of that. All right, first of all, let's talk about passive income. So passive income, I really break down into three sources. It's possible there's another one I've forgotten about in here, or that you know someone will say, but well, James, what about this? And feel free to kind of chime in if you're listening to the recording after the fact, you can kind of post a comment or send me an email. So passive income really comes from, in my opinion, three things. Number one is Social Security. So a lot of us are working for a period of time, we're contributing to Social Security, and at some point in the future... Provided the social security system doesn't fall apart and we don't get any money, which I don't think is going to happen, but who knows? I can't predict the future. So, social security, we put money in and we get a certain amount of dollars back at some point in the future. Maybe it's a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars a month, five thousand dollars. I don't even know what the cap is for social security, but you'll get a certain amount of social security coming in and that can help offset expenses you might have in retirement usually this doesn't start until i think 62 or 67 i think there's some ones where at 62 it starts at a certain number and then 67 it goes up to a, a certain thing and if you delay it you get some more so you know if you really are are focusing on the social security thing you're probably on the wrong webinar um but you should probably go find out more about that in detail and, and honestly if i'm going to do a thing on social security i would have to do research and do it because i definitely don't know it from memory okay so passive income social security is one of them Passive income from pensions is another, which is similar to Social Security. In some uh, jobs, you actually have a pension where you're contributing a certain amount of money for your paycheck. It goes into this centralized fund. And I'm oversimplifying all this stuff, right? This is, I'm not an expert on pensions or Social Security or annuities, which is the next one. So pensions, you, uh, you're kind of contributing from a certain job that you put money into a pension. The pension invests that money and they pay out a certain thing when you retire and you get that thing. You know, what's interesting about pensions and specifically is there's... Maybe they're not small enough, but they're small enough in my mind where I have to think about the kind of black box versus detail model. And and the black box versus detail model works like this. Sometimes it's helpful to simplify something down to a black box. For example, annuities as a black box would be, you know, I put $100,000 into a black box and it pops out, you know, $2,500 per year until I die. That's the black box. But what's happening inside the black box? Well, inside the black box is an insurance company. And the insurance company for an annuity, and the insurance company for annuity basically takes the $100,000 lump sum that you gave them, um, and they take that and they invest in things, you know, stock markets, bonds, whatever they're investing in. And they know that, hey, you may outlive the normal life expectancy. And in that case, they're okay paying out more than what you probably should have gotten from that $100,000, especially if the market doesn't go your way. But there are going to be some people that did the annuity where they died early. And so for them, they're going to make some more profit on the people that end up dying early, and they're going to make less profit on the ones or maybe even lose money on the ones where someone dies much later. But overall, because they've got you know 100,000 people putting in $100,000 each, some of them are going to die early. Some of them are going to die based on their life expectancy, you know, basically right where it is. And some of them are going to die much, much later, and they're going to lose money on those. And the overall, they're going to be able to make a profit. They're going to have enough money to kind of manage this thing correctly, pay out what they need to pay out and make their own profit so that they can run the overall business of collecting these annuities, paying out the fees monthly, managing it, sending you statements, all that other stuff. So sometimes it makes sense to look at the black box of, I put money into this pension, the pension kicks out a certain dollar amount per year until I die or until I'm a certain age or whatever the agreement is with your pension to do that. And the the idea is to simplify it down. And then sometimes you want to really step back and say, how are they able to do that? Like What is going on that allows them to do it. So, for example, when we think about the annuities one, you could take that same hundred thousand dollars that you were going to put into annuities and you could invest it in stocks and bonds yourself. The challenge is that maybe you do that, and maybe the stocks that you pick don't go your way. Maybe you know the ones that you pick end up going down in value or the whole stock market goes down in value, maybe the whole thing crashes, or maybe the um you know you outlive the reasonable time period that you expected to do that, and so. You might do better by taking $100,000 and investing in stocks yourself, or you might do worse. But the insurance company, because they're doing this in the aggregate for all these different people, they can kind of mitigate those risks across a large number of people. And so the amount that they pay out for the annuity is probably less then you might be able to do on average yourself because they've got costs and they've got, you know, some people might do better. Some people might do worse. So if you go take a hundred thousand dollars, you invest in the stock market, maybe, and there's no promises in the future, but maybe you do 7% per year. You can figure out, you know, with 7% per year and you taking out a certain amount, you know, whatever it is safe withdrawal rate on that money that you do, you can take out a certain amount of money and kind of live off that. But with an annuity, You put $100,000 in and they tell you, look, we're we're guaranteeing, I'm putting that in quotes because it's an insurance product, and so we're guaranteeing that you actually will pull out $2,500 a year, which is probably lower than your 4% safe withdrawal rate number. They're trying to be conservative and they need to make a profit, and they're kind of like guaranteeing that you will have this until you die. As an example, and there's all sorts of variations on this right there's annuities where you get some of the money back when you die or you die within a certain range or you know or you have an annuity that kind of counts for two people's lives you and a spouse or there's all sorts of variations and I'm not an expert on annuities I'm not licensed to sell annuities, so go talk to a professional if you're really interested in those, but that's sort of the idea and that idea applies kind of across the board this black box simplifying other thing. So passive income from either social security pensions or annuities, those are the three kind of passive income sources. The second one in my group is this net positive cash flow from rental properties. And I think a lot of folks on this particular webinar, because it's Real Estate Financial Planner, um, are interested in this kind of idea of net positive cash flow from rental properties. So you buy rental properties, in some cases, they have positive cash flow when when you buy them initially, especially right now with really high interest rate and really high prices. Maybe not all of them, and if you're putting very little down, maybe not all of the ones you're buying now have positive cash flow to start with. But over time, Rents tend to increase with inflation, you know, kind of like creeps up a little bit. And because a lot of your costs are fixed, like your mortgage payment, which is a, a usually a big percentage of your expenses on a property, you know, your taxes and your insurance and all that tends to go up with inflation as well. But because your mortgage payment is a rather large percentage, and your rents are going up, and your rent is the big number on top, cash flow tends to improve over time on your rental properties. And if you start out negative, it'll eventually increase and become positive. And eventually, when your property is completely paid off, you get this big jump up in how much cash flow you're getting on it, and you see positive cash flow in your rental properties. Okay. So over time, this net positive cash flow from rentals can increase as you're doing it. The interesting thing, man, I'm going off on some weird tangents today. So the interesting thing about cash flow and rental properties, let me teach positive, let me teach safe withdrawal read first, and then I'll come back to this concept. But there's something interesting about cash flow and rental properties as compared to investing in stocks. That is a little bit different. So we'll talk about that next. So why don't I do this? I'll go talk about safe withdrawal rate and then we'll come right back to this and Nick or Nathan. I see both of your names right together. Um, one of you remind me if I go off, off track and I forget to come back, it's possible. I will forget to call, uh, come back, but I, I'm holding you guys responsible. So, so safe withdrawal rate times. Money invested in other assets. So, we covered so far passive income, that's social security, pensions, annuities. We did that already. I also talked very briefly about net positive cash flow and rental properties, which I'll go into a lot more detail here in a little bit. Um, Safe withdrawal rate, money, um, safe withdrawal rate times money invested in other assets like bonds. So, the third source of being financially independent is let's say over time you kind of put in whatever it is, $500 a month, and you invest that in stocks or bonds or something else like i don't know crypto or not that i suggest that you do crypto but you get the idea you can invest in something else and then that money grows by investing in these other assets and you can when you're ready to be financially independent say okay i've got a million dollars saved up what is a reasonable amount of money that i can take out from this million dollars each year where i am not super likely to have this go down to zero in my lifetime and so what that is called is a safe withdrawal rate. And there's a Trinity study and the guy who came up with it, Benjamin, who kind of, um, you know, formulated some math around this concept as to what a number is and what, you know, if you're really likely to run out of money using that number. The oversimplified version is a lot of people call this the 4% rule. They'll say, I can safely, and I'm using that in quotes, I can safely withdraw 4% Of the balance I have at the very start each year, and I am not likely to run out of money investing in stocks and bonds with certain splits over a 30 year time horizon. That's what the basically the Trinity study talks about is they did a whole bunch of math on it and they determined that. So if you have a million dollars and you have a 4% safe withdrawal rate, that means you could take out $40,000 per year in year one. And the way that they modeled it is they said, okay, you can increase that $40,000 by whatever inflation is each year. So $40,000 in year one, 40,000 plus, you'll call it 3% for inflation, although inflation right now is higher than that, but you know, 40,000 plus 3% in year two and so on and so forth until, you know, you either run out of money or you die. So that's the thought process behind the safe withdrawal rate. But what's interesting about the safe withdrawal rate, and you guys don't need to remind me because I'm going right there now with this uh, cash flow from rental properties for a safe withdrawal rate. So, What's, what's interesting about the safe withdrawal rate is we just talked about it. If you start with a million dollars, you're getting you know $40,000 a year, 4% safe withdrawal rate out of your money. And depending on what the stock market does, in some years, you may only be taking part of what the stock market grew. So if the stock market grew... in that year, you made $100,000 on your million-dollar investment, and you're only pulling out $40,000. In that case, you would never run out of money. If it did that every year, you wouldn't run out of money. You'd make $100,000 each year, you'd pull out $40,000, and actually, it would compound, so it would grow more than that. But the idea is that you're always taking out less than it grew. But unfortunately, the stock market does not 100% of the time grow every year. Sometimes, the market goes down. So imagine for a minute, you had started with a million dollars, You took out 40,000, you know, you took out 40, let's, let's say, let's do it this way. You started with a million dollars. At the end of the year, you're going to take out your money. The stock market went down to $900,000. It declined by 10% that year. And then you took out 40,000. Now you're less than you had the year before. In fact, considerably less, you know, you're at $860,000 when just a year earlier, you were at a million dollars. Well, that's potentially problematic because even if it grows that 10% back, you're still going to be under a million at that point. And if you're going to take out another $40,000, your balance is going down. So some years the stock market will go up and you'll be fine. You'll take out less than what the stock market made. Some years the stock market will go down and you'll still take out money, which is potentially problematic, which is how you could potentially run out of money using this safe withdrawal rate thing. And why, how? And and why when they ran all their modeling and they said okay look depending on when you started you know the historical stock market data you know in X percent of the time whatever it is ninety percent of the time you have more money than you started in five percent of the time you actually ran out of money um and you know you didn't have enough to do it so you can look at these numbers and see what happens and no one knows the future so you can't guarantee that that's what's going to happen however here's what's different with rental properties so let's say instead of having the million dollars and you're getting a safe withdrawal rate. You have the million dollars, but the million dollars is tied up in equity in your rental properties, free and clear rental properties. Let's say you own four free and clear $250,000 properties and they're throwing off $40,000 a year in positive cash flow from all of them combined. What was interesting about that is you're not tapping into the equity in the properties. Sure, property values can go up and down. And so your million dollar in equity could go up or it could go down. But really, what's happening is that cash flow is being thrown off. You're not tapping into the equity or the principal, another way of thinking about it, in the rental properties. So in that way, it's it's a little bit, I don't know, I, I probably would say safer when you think about it that way. But there are some weird things that could happen even with that. So for example, let's say you've got this $40,000 dollars a year coming in from your cash flow on your million dollars worth of equity in your rental properties. And, you know, you have your your budgeting for your property taxes, your property insurance, your property management, vacancy, you know, you're you're kind of budgeting for all those, maintenance on the property. But what you aren't necessarily budgeting for is capital expenses. You're not setting aside enough money so that when your $10,000 roof goes out in your property, that you have enough money set aside for a $10,000 roof. Your maintenance budget, you've included things like carpet and paint and, you know, maybe replacing some appliances over time and, you know, kind of like fixing some flooring in the kitchen and, you know, maybe some, you know, touch up paints here and there outside. Like you're not really budgeting for a roof. Some people would, but I think a lot of folks would not include that in their normal budget. So, if you have a ten thousand dollar roof come up, and you were making forty thousand dollars a year in cash flow, positive cash flow on your free and clear rental properties, what does that mean? Well, you could go and get like a you know a home equity line of credit on these free and clear rental properties. Maybe you do on one property where you say, okay, I've got a it's worth two fifty. What's seventy uh, percent of two fifty? What is that? Uh, probably one hundred and forty something. I don't know, whatever the math works out to be. So you take 70% or 75% of the 250000 you get a home equity line of credit on that. And what you do with that one is you say, okay, look, if I have a capital expense like a roof, I could go ahead and put the $10,000 on the home equity line of credit. I've got a little bit of debt on that and I've got to pay off that debt over time, but it allows me to make those payments on that debt over a period of time, instead of having to say, I made $40,000 a year on this particular property. And now this next year, I'm only gonna be able to make 30,000 because I needed to pay 10,000 for the roof. That could be hurtful for you if you're using this to live on. Instead, you could say, okay, you know, I'm gonna get 40,000 a year. I'm gonna put this key lock on this property and I gotta make payments on it. So I'm gonna reduce it, but I'm not gonna reduce it by the full 10K. And then maybe rents go up over time and you're able to kind of, you know, pay that down a little bit faster, or maybe you let it grow over time. You know, you pay off a little bit of it, whatever the minimum is, but overall that's kind of like growing every time you have a new roof on a property. And so your cash flow is kind of being diluted a little bit, uh, but it's being offset by rents going up. Kind of like just that thought process, right? Okay. So what I talked about is how I define financial independence. I've got some other stuff to cover here, but um, it's good for you to understand this baseline. So really it's income from passive income, social security, pensions, annuities, and I hope you guys understand what those are basically enough. I'm not asking you to be experts at them, but the idea of how they work and what they are. Um, net positive cash flow from rental properties, which we talked about, and this idea of a safe withdrawal rate times money you have invested in other assets like stocks and bonds. Ideally, you have all of this plus some margin of safety so that if you have a roof, as an example, when you're living on your positive cash flow from your rental properties, you can say you can absorb that roof thing. Or if you have a particularly bad period of time in the stock market, you could deal with that. The annuities, the pensions, and social security, unless those like go away, like you have an insurance company completely fail and the reinsurance company completely fails, you know, their backup uh, happens, or the company where you're getting your pension from goes out of business or they restructure your pension. Like, unless you have a catastrophic event like that, most of those are pretty stable. Um, you know, pretty likely to continue on sort of stuff. So you might not need as much margin of safety to do that, which which kind of leads me to an interesting discussion. You know, if you're taking your million dollars, and you're investing in stocks and bonds, or you're buying these rental properties, you're, you know, you're kind of like putting the risk into the rental real estate market. Um, you know, those are two different risk, right? Like you're in one, you're investing your your money in the risk of a rental property and the rental market doing well and rents kind of being where they are and all that stuff. And the other one, you're expecting, you know, uh, companies that you've invested money in to kind of continue to perform and and do what they need to do, so that you can kind of pull that money out. When you buy like an annuity, you are putting that risk off on someone else. So you're paying a premium for that, but you're putting that risk off on someone else. So if you're like a scaredy cat, you got a big yellow streak down your back, and you're like, I don't, I don't like any of this risk stuff. You could offset all of these risks. You're like, hey, look, these rental properties, they make me nervous. I want to get out of them. You know, you could use them temporarily and then take that money, sell off your rental properties and then buy like an annuity as an example. Not that I'm recommending you do this, but you could, you know, use your rental properties to acquire them over time, deal with that risk for a period of time and then say, look, now that I'm retired, I don't want any risk. I want to de-risk completely. I'm going to take all the proceeds from that and I'm going to buy an annuity as an example, or maybe you're like, look, I have bought all this risk and all this overhead and management and all these rental properties. They've, they've done really, really well for me while I'm growing it. But now I'm at a point where I want to retire and I don't want to put in all this effort. I want to convert to a much more passive, less work, less oversight type of model. I don't want to manage a property manager anymore. I'm going to take the proceeds from my rental properties after I pay. You know, real estate commissions and capital gains taxes and depreciation recapture and you know your closing costs, like all the expenses on it. You take the net you get after you walk away and you take that money and you invest in stocks and bonds or whatever you want to do, and then live off safe with all rate if you prefer that type of risk to the real estate risk and do that. So just things to be thinking about as you as you do this. And and one of the reasons why we're having this discussion is you are going to want to choose at some point which of these areas you want to focus in on and achieve financial independence from. So I think the choice is once you decide, okay, look, here's my plan. I'm going to buy rental properties. I'm going to acquire more than I need. Then I'm going to sell part of them and pay off the other ones. and I'm going to have free and clear rentals. That's your plan, work your plan. Uh, Or I'm going to take all these rental properties. And at some point, because I'm not going to want to have, I'm not going to want to be property managing when I'm 80 years old or managing my property manager when I'm 80 years old. I want to take this money and I want to invest in stocks or bonds or annuities or whatever, okay? So that's the idea behind it. Any questions? I know I've been going off on a lot of tangents. That was the intent of this class. That's why I said it's not been one quite like this. No questions? You guys are quiet. So I, I really do like this quote for this because I, I think it's it characterizes a lot. Um, I see this a lot. You know, when I was doing a lot of, you know, real estate investor classes weekly and I have people coming to class, I would hear this in different versions of this. I would kind of hear this story. So the Cheshire Cat in the book, Alice in Wonderland, um, I'll I'll kind of read you the page. There's a quote from the book. So um, the quote is, would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That's uh, Alice asking the Cheshire Cat. The cat replies, that depends a good deal on where you want to go to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if, only, if you only walk long enough. So really, the way I think about this is, you know, should you go do fix and flips? Should you go do land speculation? Should you go do short-term rentals? Should you go buy more rental property? Should you invest in stocks? Should you go buy crypto? Should you short crypto? Should you, um, you know, go trade commodities? Should you go get two jobs? Should you work a side hustle? Like all of these are questions. And should you do those are sort of like Alice asking, could you tell me which way I should go from here? If you don't know where you're headed, if you don't know where you ultimately want to be, then it doesn't matter because you'll get there. But if you do want to specifically achieve the goal of achieving financial independence, of being financially independent, using free and clear rental properties, then you have a lot of clarity on what you should be doing. If you have a mental goal of, okay, I want to use rental properties to eventually sell off to then convert everything into stocks and bonds and live off of a safe withdrawal rate, then you have clarity on what you should be doing. Okay, so that's sort of the thinking behind this. What you need to be financially independent is your ultimate destination. So if you think about that in terms of what you need is really your budget at that period of time, right? There's, I like to think about it and I'll show you a spreadsheet here in a second you can go download. I really like to think about this as you have, Three different versions of your budget. There's your budget right now, like what your current living expenses are, what your savings rate is, you know, what you're spending on all these different aspects of you know your personal expenses. Uh, I think that's your budget right now. But I think there's a ultimate. a look, if I could live the ultimate lifestyle, the the ultimate retirement plan that I want to live at my full level, you know, fully retired, fully funded retirement plan. That's what I would call your ideal target monthly income retirement or ideal income and retirement, what some people might call fat fire. Fire is financial independence, retire early for those that don't know. But fat fire is sort of like you're living your ideal retirement lifestyle. And I do think there's one in the middle. And and I like to refer to that one as your minimum target monthly income retirement or your lean fire is another way of kind of saying that. Or another way of saying it is like my if poop hit the fan at my if poop hit the fan at my job, and I was like, you know, I just can't work here anymore. What's like the minimum you would need to live a life where you don't technically have to work anymore? You could choose to do some additional work to kind of supplement increase your lifestyle, whatever it is. But like, what's the absolute minimum? And I think, in my opinion, and I'll show you some ways to do this. But I think you should have a budget for today. I think you should have the budget for. If poop hit the fan and I really need it to stop working, what's the minimum? You know, like, I don't have HBO Max and Prime and Netflix. I only have one. <laughs> it's sort of like the, the kind of like, take it down a level or two. I'm not traveling every three months. I'm traveling every... Year, once a year, you know, like, like it's that sort of like minimum one for you. And it could be different, you know, it could be I'm not traveling at all, right, for some folks. Um, Or maybe I'm I sold my house or I'm renting my house and I'm traveling all the time and I'm living in, you know, uh, d- d- geographic arbitrage sort of situations where you're kind of living in a place that's got really low standard of living like Portugal or Philippines or Thailand or whatever it is. Mexico. Um, So you could kind of do that as your minimum target monthly income retirement. And then I think you need to do the budget for your ideal. And then once you know those, you say, look, if if I'm doing my current path right now, this is what I currently have in assets and what they're producing for me. Here's my minimum. What would I need in assets? Like if if I could kind of wave a magic wand and have my assets be supporting me in this lifestyle, what do I think that would look like? You know, how what would I have in Social Security, pensions, annuities? What would I have in the cash flow from rental properties? What would I have invested at a safe withdrawal rate, getting from stocks and bonds? And like, how does that break down? And then for the ideal one, you want to break that down too. So, ideally, what you need to be financially dependent is your ultimate destination. That's your budget. What you choose to invest in to get you there is your path or your action plan. And I think that dictates your choice. You know where you want to go based on your budget, and then you say. How do I get there? That's my action plan to do that. Okay, so I taught a whole class of this before. You guys can go watch it. It's the ultimate fire budget. I probably should correct the typo here. Oops, fire should really be all caps because it's kind of, there we go. So you can create three budgets simultaneously, which I talked about your current budget. Now your minimum target monthly income and your ideal. And so there's this, it's a special budget sheet. You can go download it. You can make your own, you don't need mine, but it really has three columns. You write down all your current expenses. And I've only shown housing on here, although there's ones for every different aspect of your thing, but go do your own. If you want to, you do a current budget of what your current expenses are. You do a minimum target monthly income. You're kind of like your lean fire number. And then your ideal to do that. I have a little red, like a yes or no checkbox uh, for whether that's actual or estimated. Sometimes people are like, you know, I'm going through this really quick. I think my HOA is about this. I haven't looked it up. So I'll go put N for that. If it really is your actual, we could put yes so that you know which ones are real numbers or that you estimate and then you firm it up later. And, and don't, uh, the piece of advice I'll give you on this is don't get caught up in detail, right? Doing this poorly is better than not doing it at all. Um, and so it's better for you to have a bad budget and then improve it over time Then for you to skip this exercise completely and not do it. So I would strongly recommend that you do a budget and kind of figure all that out. So anyway, go make your ultimate FIRE budget. And then on this spreadsheet at the bottom is this. And I want to talk a little bit about this because it ties into this, what is financial independence for you. And so currently you write down what, if you have any annuities, what you currently have in annuity income. Um, most people... You could buy, I, I, I'm not an expert in annuities, but you can buy annuities where they start at a certain date in the future. You could also buy annuities where they start immediately. So you can do like a single premium immediate annuity. Okay, I first I apologize. I'm looking out the window here and I saw what I thought was a coyote, a coyote actually chasing geese. Turns out it's someone with their dog in a field. Because um, I kind of back to the open space, but I for a second there I was like, "Wow, I'm, I'm watching coyotes hunt geese," but it turns out it's not. So sorry, distraction, false alarm. Man, I do have a little bit of uh, whatever attention deficit sort of focus issues. All right, so so annuities you could do a single premium immediate annuity uh, SPIAS. Um, where you pay a certain amount of money, $100,000 as an example, and then they immediately start paying you out, you know, $2,500 a year, whatever it is. And part of that's dependent on your age and what's going on. So they they, they vary. But once you get locked in, you lock it in. Or you could say, look, I'm going to pay $100 a month. And by the time I'm 55 or 65 or whatever age you set up with the annuity company, um, I'm going to pay out whatever that dollar amount is. You can kind of do it that way too. So you put in whatever your current annuity situation is. Or you could say, look, when I finally reach my, my kind of um, my minimum or my lean fire number i want to have this amount in annuities and some people would think you know i want my like baseline expenses covered by something where it is completely de-risked right like it's it's like uh as safe as it can be which is sort of an annuity sort of product where you're you're putting the risk on someone else's insurance company to handle that so you might say look i really want to have I don't know, $1,000 or $2,000 a month in the, or not a month. Oh, maybe it is a month in annuity type income. And so you want to put a little bit of you know, money into here to do that. Some people will be like, ah, nah, I want to have all of it in real estate. It's up to you, it's your, your choice. And then if you want to have annuities for ideal, you put it in there. Social security, you estimate, look, if I stopped working right now, this is what it would be. If I stopped working when I think I'm going to be at this lean fire number, that's what my social security will be at that point. And realize that it might not actually kick in until, Eight sixty-two or whatever it is there or my ideal number says that if I work all the way to line whatever your ideal fire sort of number is your kind of fat fire number that's what social security will be for me so you can kind of plug in what these numbers are or you could say look I don't believe that social security will be there for me I'm going to put zeros in here for all that if I get extras that will be my margin of safety that will be my bonus so you can think of it that way too if you got a pension, great. Same idea. Just plug in your pension numbers for those. Now, here's the net rental cash flow one, and and this I think is interesting because um, let, let me kind of describe it this way. Right now, you might be making, I don't know, net five hundred dollars a month on your rental properties because you know maybe a couple of them have negative cash flow and maybe a couple of them have positive cash flow, so the net after all of them is five hundred. But realize when you own rental properties, this kind of rent tends to increase over time and so you have to look at a couple different things you have to look at you know what it is right now what it will likely be when you're sort of in the future and you can kind of guess at that or kind of do some really rough line estimates if you if you have access to the real estate financial planner software you can put it in your numbers and see what it is at any point in time so we do all that modeling for you but if you don't just kind of estimate and say you know this is where it is however if you're thinking to yourself at some point in the future when I'm at my ideal or maybe when I'm at my minimum, what I want to do is I want to have free and clear rental properties. Here's the way to think about that. Your cash flow on a free and clear property that doesn't have a mortgage rental property is net operating income. So if you calculate net operating income, you take your your gross potential income, subtract that vacancy, you got your gross operating income, subtract out your operating expenses, your taxes, your insurance, your maintenance, your um, property management, your HOA fees, you know, any landlord paid utilities, like all those things, you subtract out all those. And what you're left over with after you subtract those out is net operating income. Net operating income is the income your rental property produces, excluding, not including at all any financing charges. So if you think about it, If you want to find out what your rental properties will ultimately produce when they're paid off free and clear, it is your net operating income on all those properties. So if you say, if you made a little spreadsheet and says, okay, here's the six rental properties I have, I'm probably selling these two off at some point because they're kind of like not ones I'd want to hold in my portfolio long-term because I think sometimes we buy properties for strange reasons, you know, because this one cash flow is really great or I had this before I got married and so I converted it to a rental, but it's kind of a weird property. would It shouldn't really even be a rental property. It's sort of like one I just happen to have. And so maybe I want to get rid of that one or maybe that's the best one that I'm going to keep that, you know, all these different reasons for selling and not selling. But maybe you decide, hey, look, I've got these six rental properties. These two I'm going to get rid of. So ultimately, I will have these four free and clear when I want to hit my kind of like retirement number. And so you want to look at what your net operating income number is on those four, if they were completely paid off, and how much that would contribute toward you being financially independent. So you got to put those numbers in here in the spreadsheet. Or maybe you say to yourself, look, I've got these six rental properties. What I ultimately would like to do is I'd like to sell all six and trade them up to one big apartment building. And here's what I think, if I sold them all, you know, five years in the future, and I paid all the real estate commissions, closing costs, capital gains taxes, or maybe you're not going to pay capital gains, but you're going to do 1031, and depreciation recapture, maybe you're going to pay that, or maybe you're going to do 1031, and defer those. And I take that money, and then I roll it into a, you know, 25% down or 30% down apartment building. And I think I can get it at a X at cash on cash return, you got to do these calculations to see it, then this is what I might be getting on trading up and re-leveraging up into this apartment building. And you got to go look at your numbers and see exactly what that would be and when it might be to kind of plan for this to figure it out. So you just kind of put in your net rental cash flow uh, on there for doing that. Okay. I think I covered what I wanted to cover on that. Any questions on that before I go off on some other tangents here? While you're typing something, if you are, um, I will kind of go on to something else here. and, And if I need to come back, I'll come back. So what the spreadsheet is designed to do is because a lot of times we know these numbers, I said, let's go ahead then and solve for how much extra money you would need to support yourself. So the thinking and the budget, if you're going to go fill out the budget, at least my version of the budget, you go make all your budgets for your current, your minimum, and your ideal. And it kind of calculates all of your expenses for any of those three situations. Then you write in how much you have annuities for all three, how much you get in Social Security for all three, how much you're getting in pension for all three, and then what you're going to expect to get in net rental cash flow on all three of them. And if you have any other income, like you sold a business, you're going to get payments of you know a thousand dollars a month for that business or whatever you're going to do there. Then you add all these up, and then what it does, it says, okay, tell me what you believe your safe withdrawal rate is. Some people believe that it should be you know three percent to be more conservative. So the the guy who originally came up with the idea. Um, I think his name is Benjamin. Um, he he basically said recently that you can go as high as five percent, or five five and a quarter percent, or something like that. So he increased it from the four percent safe withdrawal rate that he originally came up with as an idea. So whatever you believe is true for you, go ahead and put that number in here for safe withdrawal rate, and then the spreadsheet will calculate how much you're getting from all these, and using a safe withdrawal rate, how much you would need to have saved up in addition to these other assets to be financially independent so it'll do some like reverse math for you and tell you okay you know based on how much you got for annuities social security pensions and net rental cash flow and this four percent safe withdrawal rate you would need to have six hundred thousand dollars more invested in order to be able to be financially independent so it'll do the math backwards it doesn't have to be you can kind of put in whatever number you want but i think that's a helpful way to look at it to determine which way you want to go that way you could decide hey I've already got these. If I don't do anything more, if I don't do any more action plan work toward that particular stuff and current, I can just focus in on saving money for this required investment at a safe withdrawal rate, investing in stocks and bonds, something like that. And if you think about it in a market, like we are, prices are up. Interest rates are up. Rents are sort of lagging. Is it the worst idea in the world for you to just, Put money away into something—stocks, bonds, index funds, whatever you're going to do. Crypto, not—not not that I suggest crypto. You know, crypto's a little weird for me. But anyway, I digress. Let me just kind of focus in. Invest in whatever you want to do while you're waiting for the right other investment to come, and maybe that doesn't ever come, right? Maybe it becomes. Well, turns out this stocks, bonds, whatever else I'm investing in, is the right investment for me for now. I, you know, I I did um. It's probably about four or five days ago. I did a class. And in the class, I talked about this idea of um saving up to buy free and clear rentals. I said one of the ways to avoid dealing with seven percent interest rates is don't get a loan. <laughs> and and people, I, I, th- I think a lot of people are like, but you know, the whole idea of doing real estate is to be leveraged. And so I showed. The difference in time it took to be financially independent with somebody who was highly leveraged, like doing Nomad or 20% down or 25% down versus somebody who took the time is a little slower at first, but eventually you catch up very quickly. Uh, Someone took the time to save up all their money and then eventually buy properties free and clear. Same properties, except one, you got 5% down loans really early or 20% down loans or 25% down loans earlier than you would for being completely free and clear. And the time difference between somebody doing the highly leveraged one and buying free and clear was not significant. It was a little slower, but it was not significant. And honestly, it de-risks you or it changes your risk because you're a lot of times you're investing in something else, stocks, bonds or something else while you're waiting to buy this property free and clear, but eventually you buy the property free and clear and it's not that much longer. Like if you think, oh, it's gonna take me twice as long. Nope, nope. And depending on your city and the characteristics of your properties, it could be not that much longer at all, like a few years, okay? So- it, the reason i say that is this so let's say you're like okay you know in the meantime i will hoard my money and i will start saving up for a free and clear property but inevitably here's what's going to happen at least i think this is what's going to happen for a lot of you is you'll be saving you'll be working toward having a, enough money to put you know to buy a property free and clear without a mortgage at all and when you have pick an arbitrary number in the middle 50% saved up you will come across a real estate deal where it makes sense to buy it with 50% down. You'll say, look, you know, I, I was saving up to buy this thing free and clear, but this is a great opportunity. You know, this property works. And maybe interest rates have dropped back down a little bit by then. Maybe they're up higher than they were, but you're still like, this is still a great property. I'm able to buy this property. And because I've got this big chunk of money saved up, I I can buy this property and get a 20% discount, something crazy. You know, like some really, really good opportunity will fall in your lap just because you're aware, you've got the resources lined up and you're ready to go. And so maybe you plan to do a free and clear property. And by the time you get to, 40% 40% saved up, 70% saved up, the, the like deal of a lifetime drops in your lap and you act on it because you have the resources and you're ready to go. Okay. So it could be something like that, but the one of the takeaways from this is don't stress, <laughs> relax, get some clarity on where you're ultimately going and be ready to act on that plan. Okay. Get This is what I was talking about. Get clarity on what financial independence means to you. So when you are financially independent, what do you want it to look like? Do you want X dollars used in the purchase of annuities producing Y dollars per year per month? Like, is, is your plan to have annuities? And like, how much will you be setting aside to buy those annuities? And how much will you be getting per month or per year from those? What is the amount of money you're getting from pension from your job? Maybe zero. Um, or or maybe it's money. Do you have a pension with your job? You know what's the amount of money you have coming in from Social Security? Like what will that offset, and how much more will you need beyond that? Uh, and then cash flow for rentals. Do you want a certain number of free and clear rental properties producing Y dollars per month? And again, look at net operating income to determine what that will be, and will that be enough to support you? If you look, hey, look, I've got four rental properties now. If these were paid off right now, they would produce for me, you know, six thousand dollars per month. Is that enough for you to be financially independent? You need to do your budget and see, right? You need to do your budget and determine if $6,000 a month, if my properties were free and clear, would that be enough for me? And then maybe you decide, hey, if, if these were free and clear, it would get me to be financial dependent. Maybe I should take that money and actually start paying down the mortgages. Or maybe you should take that money, invest it in stocks or bonds or whatever it is, get a slightly higher return. And when you have enough as a big lump sum, take that and pay off a mortgage in full. Because you don't really get any Cash flow benefit by paying a little bit more down on your mortgage, right? You're you're, you're basically making two hundred dollars a month in positive cash flow, and you owe two hundred thousand dollars on it. If you go pay a thousand dollars and reduce that two hundred thousand dollar mortgage down to one hundred ninety nine thousand, it doesn't improve your cash flow at all in the short term. Your cash flow is still going to be that two hundred dollars a month. You pay down another thousand dollars and go down to one hundred ninety eight thousand dollars that you owe. It doesn't improve your cash flow at all. So it doesn't have any short term effects really the only impact it has is you pay a little bit less interest on that mortgage. And if your mortgages are old mortgages where they're at three, four, 5%, you are literally earning three, four, 5% on that extra $1,000 that you used to pay down the mortgage. You're not getting any more return than that. Now, if you have a 7% mortgage that you just got and you pay down an extra $1,000 on that mortgage, guess what the return on that is? 7%. That becomes super interesting it kind of now dictates which mortgages we should pay off to kind of do this. And there's some weird exceptions, right? Because if you're down to like the last $50,000 on a mortgage and that mortgage payment was $2,000 a month, it looks really different. Although this is not mathematically correct, it looks really different if you pay off $50,000 on that mortgage and you free up $2,000 a month or about $24,000 a year in extra cash flow, Right? If you owed 50 if you you owned a mortgage for a long period of time, you owe $50,000 left on it and the mortgage payment is $2,000 a month. When you pay that mortgage off, when you finally pay off that $50,000, your cash flow immediately improves by $24,000 a year, $2,000 a month. Even though technically you're only getting a return of whatever the interest rate is, now that the mortgage is paid off, your cash flow immediately improves by that $2,000 a month because you don't need to make that mortgage payment anymore kind of crazy. Okay. So I went off on a tangent, I'm not sure how far back to go to pick up. So, okay. So we had this thing here. I said, do you want a certain number of free and clear renter properties producing x, you know, y dollars per month? You look at your net operating income and you determine, will that be enough to support me? We talked about that idea. You, know, you have $6,000. If you have all these properties paid off, maybe you start paying off those mortgages with a little bit of cash flow each month. That should that should speed things up a little bit to getting there. Or maybe you say, look, I'm gonna invest money in the stock market until I get a, a completely enough to pay off a mortgage in full. And then you do that. That that tends and it really depends on the interest rate, but that tends to be a slightly faster path it has new risk. and It introduces the risk of investing in the stock market, but that tends to be a faster path to being financially independent. If you invest in the stock market at, let's call it 8% or 7%, and then you eventually use that money once you get enough to pay off a 3% mortgage, that's faster than taking a little bit of money each month. And instead of investing in the stock market, you're paying off a 3 or 4 or 5% mortgage because the money is growing at 7 or 8% in the stock market and not just growing at 3 or 4%. Okay. That's why we might do it that way. Now, if you've got a seven or eight percent mortgage versus a seven or eight percent stock market you can make the decision to actually um you know either do the stock market or to pay down the mortgage the other problem with the paying down the mortgage is um equity is illiquid it's hard to get at hard it's harder to get at than it is to just you know call your stock market brokerage company and say send me a check you know liquidate my account and send me a check. oh there's a really cool eel out there I gotta I gotta stop I may need to close the window when I do these um Yeah, so you may want to go and you call a company and say, you know, send me the check for this. It's a lot easier than trying to get a HELOC on your property, and then you're also paying money on the HELOC and this other one you're liquidating. So, I don't know, there's things to consider there. So, cash flow and rentals, we talked about doing free and clear ones, or... You could say, look, I want to have you know ten leverage rental properties producing Y dollars a month. You know, maybe you want to get to the point where each rental property is producing you know four hundred dollars a month positive cash flow or five hundred dollars a month positive cash flow, and you want ten of them. And so now you have five thousand. And then over time, as the mortgages pay down and the rents kind of go up, you eventually improve that cash flow. And and so there's some benefits to doing it that way too. The free and clear one, your cash flow tends to increase slower because it's not leveraged anymore. With the ones with that are leveraged, your cash flow tends to improve a little bit, although it comes at a risk cost. It comes at an additional measure of risk. Um, so if you're going to do that, you should definitely talk to someone about you know how these risks kind of play out and which one's better. Uh, or we talked about passive income, talked about cash flow, or the safe, withdrawal rate on invested assets. Maybe you want to have Whatever it is, five hundred thousand, a million dollars, two million dollars, invest in stocks, bonds, or something else at a y safe withdrawal rate. You know, four percent, three percent, five percent, whatever you feel is safe for you per year, and you kind of do that, or some combination of the above. Which a combination of the above, which is what we've been talking about today. So, like, you have know, a little bit from Social Security. Uh, maybe I have a you know, I buy a little bit in annuities. Maybe I have you know one free and clear property, and you know three leverage properties, or whatever you have, and maybe you have a million dollars in safe withdrawal rate um, assets in order to be diversified across a wide number of asset fields to kind of mitigate your risk and get some of the benefits of some things and some of the benefits of other things. Any questions on that before I do it? Okay. All right. So Warren Buffett's two list strategy. So this is advice given to Mike Flint, Warren Buffett's pilot, and it's from Warren Buffett. And it's, this is from uh, James Clear's website, jamesclear.com forward slash Buffett focus. And I copied it verbatim. So I'm going to read it to you so that you kind of get the story. But these are James Clear's words, except where I kind of go off on tangent. So um, step one, Buffett started by asking Flint, his pilot, to write down his top 25 career goals. And this is relevant for you. You'll see where it goes. So Flint took some time and wrote them down. No, you could also complete this exercise with goals for a shorter timeline. For example, write down the top 25 things you want to accomplish this week. Step two, then Buffett asked Flint to review his list and circle his top five goals. Again, Flint took some time, made his way through the list, and eventually decided on his five most important goals. Now, no, if you're following along at home, pause right now and do these first two steps before moving on to step three. This is James Clear talking right now. Step three. At this point, Flint had two lists. The five items he had circled were list A and the 20 items he had not circled were list B. Flint confirmed that he would start working on his top five goals right away. That's back to James. So that's right. You basically say, look, I want to figure out what my top five priorities are and I want to focus in on my top five priorities. And for you, whatever those are for you in terms of being financially independent, whatever your goals are to get to those numbers for you. Okay, now back to the reading. And that's when Buffett asked him about the second list. And what about the ones you didn't circle? Flint replied, well, the top five are my primary focus, but the other 20 come in a close second. They're still important, so I'll work on those intermittently as I see fit. They are not as urgent, but I plan to give them a dedicated effort. And it's back to me now. And so you think to yourself, yeah, that's great, right? Like he's going to focus on the top five and... You know, If you can easily knock out number seven on the list or kind of put a little time in because it happens to be convenience due number seven right now, that's great, right? Not so fast as we continue reading. To which Buffett replied, no, you've got it wrong, Mike. Everything you didn't circle just became your avoid at all cost list. No matter what, these things get no attention from you until you've succeeded with your top five. The thinking is, I'm I'm done reading. The thinking is we tend to think of these other 20 things, these shiny objects as those seem pretty important. I mean, they're not like my most important things. They're sort of like the, should I flip land or should I, you know, go do a fix and flip or, you know, should I go think about buying properties creatively? I, I mean, if that's your top five, great, go do it. But if that's like your number seven, Or I want to think about maybe doing this other little thing that might be a distraction, but it seems kind of important to do right now. No, those are the ones you have to ignore. You really need to focus in on just the top ones. Don't mess around with the other stuff at all. So here's Warren Buffett's advice applied. I'm also currently reading. um, Got to make another typo. Oops. Okay. Currently reading another book called Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions by Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. So in that book, they're discussing this optimal strategy for exploring new things and exploiting things you already know about. And there's a lot of like research and uh, like uh, – um, computer science sort of stuff about like how to optimize for this and how people think about these problems and what the solutions are and I, I can't do justice to the whole book because there's you know entire chapters about this idea and stuff but I, I'll kind of summarize something that I think is germane to what we're talking about. There is an argument to be made that if you've got a good strategy and someone you know has done a bunch of math to show you which strategies and optimizations will get you to financial independence fastest. I mean, that's kind of what I've been you know creating the software and doing um, and with the least risk. Then perhaps, perhaps you should avoid all these other weird things and consider kind of like the shiny objects as part of that second list that Buffett talks about, the kind of 20, the avoid at all cost list and just focus in on the ones that you know will get you to financial independence fastest, and with the least amount of risk. Once you decide what that needs to look like for you, focus in on achieving those with that stuff, okay? And avoid this kind of exploring new things stuff because it's really a distraction. And a lot of times you won't know how to wake that. You won't know if that is a better choice for you because it'll be brand new for you and you won't have the nuance and expertise and subtlety of understanding all the pros and cons, and where the kind of like weird faults and stuff are. I mean, you know this to be true. Think about it for yourself. Prove it to yourself, okay? All right, so I'll get cover. I want to cover this idea of primary residence being paid off as it relates to this financial independence topic, because I do think this is an interesting example that applies to other areas. It's not, you you might think I'm just talking about primary residence and whether or not you should pay it off, but I'm not. I'm talking about a whole bunch of other problems that appear like this, okay? So let's talk about this. So should I pay my primary residence off? And if so, that may significantly reduce what you need to be financially independent. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. So let's look at an example. Imagine for a minute there's somebody who has a million dollars saved up in stocks. And in addition to that, they have a couple of rental properties where the total amount of their net cash flow after all their expenses is $1,000 per month. So not an amazing rental portfolio, but you know $1,000 a month, a healthy rental property portfolio and net positive cash flow after you know, property management, taxes, insurance, maintenance, like all that stuff. It's $1,000 a month coming from that. And they've got this $1 million invested in stocks somewhere. And they have an owner-occupant mortgage, a property that they live in, Uh, For about $1,500 a month, that's the monthly payment on it. And they have about 15 years left on it. And they owe about $200,000 on it. Also happens to be at a 4% mortgage, which it doesn't really matter that much, but you get the idea. So it's an older occupant mortgage, $1,500 a month payments. They have 15 years left to pay it off and $200,000 left on it. It's at 4%. Their personal expenses to live on, including that mortgage is $60,000 per year. So, they have a personal expense of about five grand a month. $3,500 of it is for non mortgage expenses. And then $1,500 of that $5,000 is their personal mortgage payment. Okay. That's how it's breaking down. So, should they pay off their mortgage or not? That's the question. And I I would prefer it if you thought about it from your kind of like where you are right now before you hear my answer and you decide does it make sense for them to pay off their mortgage? Feel free to include your comment in the chat or if you listen to the recording afterward, just kind of think to yourself, should they pay off their mortgage in this situation or should they not? Okay, so let's walk through kind of like the the two situations here and I'll I'll kind of throw in an additional one here. All right, so if they keep the mortgage on their primary, so at a 4% safe withdrawal rate on the million dollars that they have invested in stocks, they could expect to pull out about $40,000 per year from their investments. So, just by having that million dollars invested in stocks at a four percent safe withdrawal rate, they can actually generate about forty thousand dollars per year in income on that. Plus, they have that thousand dollars per month in cash flow on their rental properties, so they have about twelve thousand dollars in cash flow on their rental properties per year as part of their kind of like income. So, between forty thousand dollars from the stocks at a safe withdrawal rate and the twelve thousand dollars in cash flow for the year, they have about fifty-two thousand dollars per year in income but they have $60,000 per year in expenses. So technically, they're not financially independent, right? They, have, they need, they need $60,000. They got $52,000 a year achieved. So they're 86.7% of the way there. So if they don't do anything, if they don't pay it off, they're not financially independent. However, what if they do pay off their primary? So they take $200,000, which is how much they owe on their mortgage, and they remove that from the stock market account. And they say, okay, I'm going to take 200000 of the million dollars I've invested in stocks and bonds to reduce my personal expenses by that $1,500 a month payment. So this is not valid math, but I'm going to show you what it feels like to them. Okay. So it's this is not the way you should do this math, but it's, it's sort of the way it feels. So what they basically did is they said, I have $1,500 a month in payments times 12 months is about $18,000 a year. So it looks like you put in $200,000 to pay this thing's off and you you get you get $18,000 per year as a return because you don't you no longer have that $1,500 a month payment, $18,000 a year if you pay $200,000 as investment, that works out to be about a 9% return on their investment. It's, math is not actually right, but the idea is how it feels, okay? So it really is earning the mortgage interest rate of 4%. That's technically the right math, but it feels like they're earning $18,000 because they get rid of that $18,000 in payment. So now once they do that, instead of having a million dollars invested, they now have $800,000 invested at that 4% safe withdrawal rate, which generates them $32,000 per year in income. 4% times 800,000 is $32,000 per year. Plus that $12,000 per year in cash flow on their rental properties. That gives them $44,000 per year in income between their safe withdrawal rate and the rental property cash flow. Everyone follow me? Anyone lost? Good. If you are, let me know. But now instead of having those expenses be $5,000 a month, which is what they had if they had that mortgage, now their personal expenses are only $3,500 a month since the mortgage is paid off. Self-taxes and insurance, that's part of the 3,500. But the mortgage part of it is $1,500 a month, okay? Times 12 equals $42,000 per year. So now their personal expenses are $42,000 and they're generating $44,000 from their investments. So now mathematically, they're financially independent by a little bit. You know, they got $2,000 a year extra to spend, which is interesting, right? Because now you think to yourself, man, that was kind of crazy because if they kept the mortgage, they're not financially independent. If they get rid of the mortgage by paying it off, they technically are. Craziness. Okay, now there's a third option. They could choose to not pay off the primary residence, you know, keep the $200,000 invested, but just pretend, <laughs> just arbitrarily, you know, I am financially independent, even though mathematically you don't meet the definition, right? We, I, I, Yeah, we're just, we're financially dependent. We're not going to work anymore. They would be withdrawing higher than their 4% safe withdrawal rate from that million dollars, right? Because they're short. They're short by uh. Eight thousand dollars a year because they were making fifty-two thousand dollars a year in income, and they're short uh, and they need sixty thousand. So for a while, for fifteen more years, they're they're pulling out an extra eight thousand dollars per year from their stock market portfolio. So they would be d- withdrawing higher than that four percent safe withdrawal rate. Okay, but that's only happening until either number one, their mortgage is paid off completely fifteen years later, or two, cash flow in the rentals increases enough. That they eventually qualify as five. Because remember, they're making that a thousand dollars a month in cash flow. Let's say that's from four properties that are leveraged. Well, next year they might be making, I don't know, twelve hundred dollars a month in cash flow. And the next year they might be making four fourteen hundred dollars a month, and the next year they might be making sixteen hundred dollars a month. So eventually you get to the point where the extra money coming in from rents kind of creeping up slowly over time on the rental properties and the expenses creeping up, but not quite as fast. That extra cash flow that they're getting will eventually cover that $1,500 a month mortgage. It may take a while, but they could do something like that where you sort of like, I've been calling this chillaxing into retirement. I used to call it coast. Coast fire, but someone else used coast fire to mean, you know, when you have enough money that if you don't add any more, then eventually you become financially independent. If you just kind of work your job and spend all your money, I I can't use coast anymore. So I've been calling it chillaxing into financial independence, where you kind of have these, these kind of like assets that you're not technically there, but you stop working anyway because you know that eventually something is going to happen that'll make you financially dependent. For example, you know, if two years from now, you have two years left on a couple of investment property mortgages, and you know that they're gonna be paid off. And at that point, your cash flow is gonna improve by three grand a month. And you're like, hey, look, I've got enough money to get me from today to two years from now when those properties are free and clear. And when I when they are free and clear, then I'm gonna be financially independent. Couldn't you stop working the two years earlier? Because you know you're gonna get there in two years. I mean, the properties are gonna pay off, right? And then you're 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 gonna have enough. So you could. Sort of chillax. That's like another example of this, as I mentioned at the beginning. This is like a a, a kind of case study, but it's wider breadth. It, it applies to more than just this exact example. Okay. So I don't know, just something to think about there. Uh, another kind of thought process, and I'm getting toward the end here in the presentation. Um, if you're 110 years old and you have a million dollars saved. Do you really need to keep a 4% safe withdrawal rate at that point and only spend $40,000 a year? And I would argue probably not, right? If you have a million dollars, you probably don't need to limit yourself to $40,000 if you're 110 years old. And, And so I've done the extreme case. At some point you come back and say, well, what about 109? Well, probably same answer. What about 108? And if you keep coming back enough, eventually you get to the point where you're like, I don't know where this is for you, but there may be a point at 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old where 4% no longer applies to you. And that's for something for you to think about. The Trinity study, which is where we got that safe withdrawal rate math originally done for, um, was a 30-year time period. That's what they were planning based on. And many of the results had you end up with more money than you started with. In some cases, a lot more money than when you started. However, there were a small percentage of times when you ran out of money over 30 years. And that's where they're trying to find that kind of sweet spot for a kind of safe withdrawal rate, okay? And we don't know the future, right? You know, 4% over the next 40 or 50 years, 4% may prove to be way too conservative or it may prove to be not conservative nearly enough. You may have been at like a 2% safe withdrawal rate over the next 50 years. We don't know the answer to that. And that's sort of the discussion we had where we talked about this idea of annuities where you lock in a fixed dollar amount and then it's up to the insurance company to deal with that risk is off of your plate if you decide to do that. Or we talked about the rental properties and how you're technically not spending the principal. You're kind of only spending the the fruits of the asset, you know, the kind of like the cash flow portion of it. And you've got the equity all kind of like saved up there. And then we talked about that roof and how you might need to tap into it for different things. So all these things are kind of related, just kind of things to think about. All right, I think I have two more slides after this. This one and one more. So here's a couple of kind of like off the wall things as to like, you know, how do these apply to being financially independent? And, and warning, I will tell you, I've labeled this my controversial list of what is included in safe withdrawal assets because some of these are controversial. So, and if you have equity in a property or you have equity in a business, which properties, rental properties are really a business, right? And if you think about that, Um, But equity in properties or equity in a business, unless you plan to convert that to invested assets, unless you plan on selling it and then investing in stocks or bonds or whatever it is, you cannot use that as a safe withdrawal rate number. You can't say I've got $1,000 a month in cash flow. And a million dollars in equity in my property. So really the million dollars in equity, I could use that as a safe withdrawal rate and do 4% on that. So that's really $40,000 a year. Plus I've got this $1,000 a month in cash flow. So that's $12,000 a year. I add those together, I get 52. No, 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 no. You are not allowed to do that math that way. Cannot do it that way. Okay. The, the equity, the million dollars in equity is what is producing the $1,200 a month or whatever I said, $1,000 a month in cash flow, $12,000 a year. That equity is what's producing the cash flow. You can't double dip. And that applies to businesses as well. Okay. Unless you sell it, unless you sell the rental property, you convert that to stocks or bonds or whatever it is. And then you can use the safe withdrawal rate on it. And where this comes up, and I think I'm jumping ahead here, where this comes up a lot is some people will say to me, James, what I want to do is I want to ultimately become a hard money lender. I want to use rental properties to get to the point where now I have, you know, $5 million that I could lend out at 12, 14, 16, 18, 20% to people doing fix and flips where I could then make 12, 14, 16, 18% of my money. And, And by doing that, that means I can actually count that 12, 14, 16, 18%, whatever number I'm getting for these loans, I can count that as pure income. So if I've got a million dollars, I'm making 12%, you know, I can say I can spend $120,000 a year because that's what I'm getting on those hard money loans. No, that's not how that works. And this is why I think it's controversial. I think that you say, I've got this million dollars that I'm loaning out at 12% or 14% or 16%, you still do a 4% safe withdrawal rate on that million dollars. It doesn't matter that you're earning 12, 14, 16, 18% on that money. You really need to use the 4% safe withdrawal rate. It's as if you invested that million dollars in stocks and the stock market did 12, 14, 16, 18% over those next couple of years. It's the same idea. We're still only using the 4% safe withdrawal rate on that. Okay. All right. Continue on equity and properties and business. You could use true cash flow to determine whether you're financially independent. True cash flow includes cash flow plus depreciation, cash flow from depreciation. So the tax benefits of owning the rental properties too. You could combine those. It's less conservative to do it that way. I think it's it's a legitimate way to do it though, because you have to think about that as a real benefit. It's not just a. It doesn't. It's not that that doesn't exist. So you could use true cash flow. You could use cash flow or the reduced living expenses of a free and clear property that you live in instead. So, when I'm talking about the equity of properties, you're counting the true cash flow generated or the cash flow or the fact that you no longer have a mortgage payment because you own that free and clear property. And so now your, your monthly expenses dropped by that $1,500 in that example as just a way to describe that. So, you can't count the equity twice. Now, I'm sure someone's going to come out with some crazy thing and be like, but James, what if I have a free and clear property and I have a HELOC on it and I'm using the HELOC to make my loans? And so, really, I have more than that. I mean you guys are getting into like these strange areas where you're double dipping and you're adding a lot of risk by doing that and so technically could you do that but then then it's really that you don't have you know a million dollars in equity you only have you know um 75% of a million dollars or uh, 75% is 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 kind of your loan so you really only have $250,000 in equity and really the The cash flow gets decreased by whatever the payment is on that HELOC, and then you have the $250,000, which is really part of your safe withdrawal rate. So yeah, I mean, you could try to get creative with me, but it's really not that, right? Because then it's changing the characteristics of the investment. It's not what it is anymore. Um, Or if you're going to sell a business, the payments on the sale of the business or the property, if you're going to do like owner financing or something, is temporary income. That's how I would look at that. I would look at that as, you know, I've got a payment stream for 15 years. It's going to be this amount of money. You could do it that way. I don't think you double dip and do a safe withdrawal rate on that. Maybe you could, but that's the way I think about it. And again, controversial. You've been warned. Uh, Payments to you on loans made. This is me using the hard money example. So consider these invested assets and use safe withdrawal rate instead. Think about this as a bond. I mean, that's what you're doing. You loan people money and they pay you an interest rate. So it's just like having a bond. And dividends. Consider these invested assets to use safe withdrawal rate instead. So, if you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm going to live on the dividends from the stocks that I own or whatever, you know, I think you just think about that all that as uh, safe withdrawal rate numbers instead. All right, last slide. And hope you guys like this. So, the question is should I blank my either rental property or regular property. And the question of, should I sell my rental property? Should I sell my property? Should I cash out, refi my property? Should I cash out, refi my rental property? Should I you know do a rate and term refinance on my rental property? Should I add a second mortgage to my rental property? Should I pay off my rental property? Should I do nothing to my rental property? You know, the, the my rental property or my property is really a question of your priorities and what will get you closer to your goal of financial independence faster and or with less risk. Because if you tell me, I want to do annuities or I want to have a certain amount of money invested in you know, stocks and bonds and use a safe withdrawal rate. If I t- say I want to have cash on rental properties, it affects how I think, personally, you should answer that question. You know, there are non-mathematical questions and analysis about that, which I, I'm, I'm planning on doing a class on that. I'm not sure it'll be tomorrow, but um, soon I think I'm going to do a question about like the non-mathematical questions of should I sell or should I refi my rental property? And then I think there are math-based analysis about that. No, doing the analysis to say, here's the amount of return I'm getting from appreciation and debt pay down and cash flow and tax benefits. And this is how much equity I have in my property. And honestly, it's really true net equity your equity after you have all the expenses of doing whatever it is you're going to do. So, like, this is how much return I'm getting on my equity amount. So, that's sort of the threshold I would need to beat if I were going to do something with this and move it somewhere else. That's the thinking, right? That's the math part of it. And then the question is, okay, I, I have this one set of assets, and it's got great cash flow, but the appreciation and the debt pay down, the depreciation, they've kind of all dropped off. And so the overall return is why, but a good part of that is cash flow. And now you're going to take that asset and you're going to move it into something else. And maybe that has really good appreciation, really good debt pay down, really good depreciation, but the cash flow sucks now. And depending on what you're trying to accomplish, that may be great, or it may suck right? Depending on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to go for a certain amount of cash flow and you have a very narrow time, you have a very like short time period to do that, you might not want to convert one type of asset to another if it doesn't get you there. But if it does get you there, then you got to really think about that. You got to make a decision based on the non-math questions and then also the math-based questions and decide what does this look like. So I I just have like a sub-question kind of tab here. For example, if I sell, should I do a 1031 exchange? Know, kind of defer those capital gains and defer the depreciation recapture taxes? And then what should I invest in instead? And if it's a replacement real estate, should I do accelerated bonus depreciation on that? I mean, those are like questions that come up. So you have all these like sub questions that get triggered when you do that. All right, that is it, folks. Um, I hope you've enjoyed that. Although I don't know if you did. so Because you guys have been so quiet. I have no clue if you like that or not. And no one is prompting a response here. So I assume everyone is asleep on the call, which is awesome. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Oh, you guys definitely enjoyed it. Okay, good. You're very, very welcome. Very welcome, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nathan. So yeah, um, awesome. I'm glad you guys liked that. Hopefully it was good. Hopefully give you some food for thought about what is financial independence and like how does it specifically apply to you and then how that drives your decisions about what you should do, what you should not do, and how to think about a lot of these things. So hopefully that was helpful. That's all I got for you. Big football day today. So I am probably going to go grab myself breakfast and then watch a lot of football and kind of relax a little bit. So hope you guys have a great day as well. I'm going to end the webinar. Thank you all for coming. I do appreciate it. Bye-bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Gresham is harder than ever. Book a call